Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, you've called the Mojo Radio Show. We can't come to the phone right now because we're about to start the show. But please, wait for the tone and the boys will be with you shortly. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. What is our little program all about? Well, we just find interesting people from any walk of life. We think they've got their mojo working in some aspect of their world in or out of work. We sit with them, we extract what they do best to get their mojo working so we can get our mojo working. So another great week ahead of us across the panel in the studio, Chief Engineer Robbo, welcome to this week's show, mate. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm very well. And before we start the show, I've got a gift that was given to me to give to you. Oh, nice. Okay. There's plenty of room in the driveway. The car will fit. Yeah, no. One of our super fans was at a speaking gig I did in Sydney last week. And I don't know how long he'd been carrying this, but his name is Mike. And you have met Mike because Mike was at our dinner that we had with Ah. Darren Altglass. Anyway. G'day, Mike. So he came along. Yeah, so he came along to see me speak and he said, this is for you guys. He gave me one of these... (laughs) <laughs> oh, wow. Little Tim Tam. <laughs> a man after my own heart. Nice. But hang, hang on. There's only half a Tim Tam here. Well, it's a shit here. What, what? It's soggy from coffee. It was a long bus trip, brother, <laughs> from the city out to your studios. So. Uh, thanks anyway, Mike. Yeah, it's good to catch up with him, actually. And uh, we have got another great show in front of us. So uh, let's get on the road. Hi, I'm Maria Gronberg. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro four times and summited Mount Everest this year of May. Oh man, I'm struggling through the Mojo Show. The Mojo Radio Show. This week's guest is sports psychologist Dr. Simon Marshall. And I think it's fair to say over the last five seasons, the shows that have had probably the most interest, downloads or feedback we get around mental performance, resilience, grit, sports performance, psychologists. So I think this week's going to be another cracker. Simon and his world champion wife, Leslie Peterson, and you'll hear why she's a world champion, are the driving force behind Braveheart Coaching, and they're the co-authors of a terrific book called The Brave Athlete. 
No doubt mental performance is one of our most popular topics, and this guy has a great take on what we need to do to show up every day to be at our best and also just deal with the hardships that life throws at us. So, Simon, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to... uh to talk to uh, you know the Poms uh, from a Pom to the Aussies from afar. I'm in the US, uh, so I'll, I hope you're not going to give me too much crap for this. <laughs> With the way our cricket team's going and our uh, rugby team at the moment, mate, you'll be getting nothing from us about sport. Um, mate, when <laughs> um, when people ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? <laughs> um, I think uh, I I usually think about um, my I really are. I sell to people, look, do you do it? Do you ever have thoughts and feelings that you don't want? And they say, well, yeah, I kind of do. And I say, yeah, well, I help you with that. So I try and get people to sort of have a more uh, internally uh, a calmer environment. So there's not so much internal conflict. Um, so it's in it's the, the official sort of name, I guess, is performance psychology. So trying to help people be the best versions of themselves on the day. Um, and that involves a lot to do with managing mindset. And I kind of want to start there and, and go through this, Simon, but you, you are married to a world champion athlete. And I heard that some time back when your wife, Leslie, was being coached, Leslie was feeling uncomfortable about the conversation that coaches would have with athletes. Was that really the the kind of the catalyst to you guys getting together to do what you do today in the way you do it? Uh, well, that, that is true in terms of how she sort of um, one, she kind of retired. She was an ITU triathlete on the GB uh, national team from a very early age. And I met her when she was uh, just a wee babe at 20 or 19 or something. And uh, she was coached by predominantly exercise physiologists, British sport uh, in the uh, early 90s, uh, sorry, early uh, late 90s, um, was really, uh, you know, it's the kind of the wave of sports science had really sort of engulfed British sport for the for the better. I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, kind sort of uh, disputing that, but that came at a price, uh, particularly when most of the coaching staff were now coming from uh, physiology labs or, you know, uh, they, they were kind of like very quantitative data-driven uh, scientists turned coaches, and many of many of whom didn't really have a very good bedside manner. And when you take, and it's not just Leslie, but when you take athletes who are more than just pairs of legs and lungs, and your your feedback about races is sort of exp- ex- Excel spreadsheets um, and you know data points and quite impersonal feedback, they they really she really had trouble sort of connecting with that. Some athletes really respond to that, but Leslie wasn't one of those athletes, and and you know there were a whole host of mind games that whether they knew the coaches knew they were playing these or not and so she felt a bit kind of disillusioned with the sport and especially so because Leslie was one of these athletes where her performances out in the field uh, really surpassed her her laboratory data so when you go in for testing and a lot of talent ID programs do this you on paper she was pretty effing average I don't know I don't want to swear on your podcast but uh, uh, she was pretty she was pretty she was pretty average so um but she, but she really could deliver in some in some cases, not very reliably, but she could. Um, and so they've kind of had written her off as being one of those athletes that isn't going to make it. And I actually had the opposite problem. So I was a cyclist, and I had lab data that was 
was pretty good, but my performances were piss poor. <laughs> uh, so, so, so there was a there was a concept. Why are you so shit? If this is what's telling us your threat, you know, lactate threshold data, VO two max data, and all this other stuff, the metrics that athletes use. So. Uh, we kind of had uh, similar issues, but coming at it from a quite a different perspective. And I was finishing my PhD in sports psychology, and and she was one of the f- and, and on the cycling team. She was one of the few triathletes who used to come out on the the men's cycling team club ride. So we got chatting actually. So it wasn't you know we sort of were flirting and dating way before we had any sort of professional <laughs> uh, allegiances together. And then it kind of started. It's interesting that. In the book, The Brave Athlete, you talk about identity. And I just want to camp here for a second. Can you explain, because I think this is fascinating, can you explain what identity is? Yeah, identity, I mean, identity has quite a rich tradition in psychology. I mean, psychology has been studying this for years and years about what it is and what it means and how we can change it and how it develops. And so in a nutshell, it's essentially... The thoughts and feelings or the beliefs that you have about yourself in a particular role. And so we all have multiple identities. We have identity as a, in my case, as an athlete, as a husband, as a, a team shit member, um, as a, if people don't know what that means, I'll explain that in a moment. Um, uh, you know, an employee, a podcaster, right? So we all have these identities. And, and underlying the scaffolding of that identity uh, really is a, a set of thoughts and feelings that you have about yourself in that capacity. And they all feed in to one big mother of an identity, and that's what we call your self-concept. So your self-concept is a bit like what you think of yourself as a person, right? All of the thoughts, at least what you're capable of, what you're good at, what you're not good at, and so on. And and it's a bit like um, an investment portfolio. So if you can imagine all of your, your stocks being in these investments that are like your separate identities, and they're all feeding into your overall balance, which is your self-concept. So if you've got just one identity, meaning that you're an athlete and that's it, and you're kind of a one-dimensional bore, uh, that's okay. Your self-concept can still be bolstered. But if something happens to that identity, you get injured, the sport is taken away from you, it's not just your athleticism your sense of athleticism that that crumbles it's your overall self-concept what you know who am i you have an identity crisis often so what we try and get athletes to do is to get to not just dissect their thoughts and beliefs there's a whole host of little we've got this little audit or checklist of whether you have a, a mature identity uh, in that particular uh, arena, but to say, have you got some good balance in your life? Are all your are all your investments in one single stock, and that that comes at a price if something happens? So we we are, we're trying to constantly evaluate and and sort of gauge where someone's identity is kind of wrapped up in, and where it needs to be a bit more diversified. And then you know, in in terms of that sort of. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The sort of nerdy psychology of this, these thoughts and beliefs that you have about yourself, the sort of the scaffolding or the architecture of who you are in that capacity Psychologists call your self schema, your self schema. Only bloody psychologists come up with a name like that. 
totally incomprehensible. <laughs> so, so, but you're, so if you want to do like identity work with an athlete and I'll, uh, and so an athlete might say, okay, tell us about yourself as an athlete. Oh, I'm just an age group athlete. Or if you talk to an entrepreneurship, you know, tell me about yourself, your entrepreneur history and what you're looking for, your goals. But, and they say, oh, I'm just this. Or I'm not very good at that. The words that they use are little windows into the, that thought and belief system about the identity. So it gives you a sense of what stuff that might need to be, you know, given a booster seat uh, to improve on. Or some people um, have a very, very overripe identity, an identity that's so strong that it's really getting in the way. So people who think their shit don't stink, you know, they're telling you constantly how great they are and they're self-aggrandizing all the time. And, you know, or when things bad go wrong, it's never their fault. When things go well, it's always there. It's because of them. And so we, we kind of, the way that people talk about themselves gives us a little window into the health of that schema or identity. Do you know, I think this is gold, Simon. I reckon there's so much to unpack there. And hearing you talk for the last two questions you've addressed for me, it makes me think that also if you convert the athlete into the corporate athlete, what we're finding is a few corporate businesses, particularly in our country, have come under the spotlight in the Supreme Court for doing wrongdoings. And a lot of the commentators are saying that stems back to the fact that the way the company measures its performance of its people and the company is through metrics, it's through numbers. And people will do whatever it takes to hit those numbers. And there's been a lot of discussion about if you have a greater purpose that's not just about the metrics, and let's talk about the athlete being the whole as opposed to just a spreadsheet, are you finding that the the material that you're working with, the psychology behind what you're doing on the on the track is also the same psychology that you are able to apply or speak to people about the corporate world? Absolutely, because one of the reasons why is that none of these identities that we have exist in a vacuum. So it's very rare to find someone who will tell you in sport how amazing they are, how great they are, how successful they are, and to expect one of their other identities to to be the complete opposite. These identities and the underlying self-schema, they bleed into the other identities. So absolutely. Uh, and, and one of the, in fact, we use that as sort of one of the, the great tools is that sport is often just a vehicle, uh, a sort of a, a context from which to kind of learn some great life lessons about how to handle daily stuff better, right? And so the same would apply in the business world. Um, and so the, the, the point that you make about the current trend uh, uh, in Australian business uh, is this, does the over-reliance or over-focus on outcome metrics, does that come at a cost, like in terms of, you know, by, by any means necessary? And so the interesting thing about all of the research on identity and self-schema is that it's independent of actual performance. So in other words, how f- I'll just take an athlete example, and we can obviously see the corollary in business, is that your identity as an athlete, how mature it is, uh, or how healthy it is, is completely independent of how fast you are, how successful you are, objectively, and so on. Because when you dissect what, and we can talk through what some of these elements of identity actually are, uh, you can see that they're not related to their, uh, those outcomes at all. So what this means for us is that if we focus on building 
the sort of the the and you might know it as that kind of process focus like what does it mean to be a great entrepreneur or business owner or someone who executes a process very well and if you focus on those things the outcomes or the process the the, the outcomes or the performance metrics take care of themselves uh, there's a few obviously a few caveats there so this is the this is the kind of the the big challenge with athletes is to say, listen, we're not saying that performance doesn't matter. Uh, we're not saying that times and podiums and selections don't matter. Some athletes, like my wife, uh, absolutely, your mortgage payment depends on some of those <laughs> things, right? So to, to expect... So to expect that performance metrics don't matter is, is, is totally naive. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is the paradox of performance is that once you've identified what those metrics are, the best way to get them is to not focus on them, is to focus on all the ingredients that make great performances. So we often talk about in sport for an athlete, when, when you're going through adversity, when you're dealing with struggles, or you're in those like airline turbulence metaphor that it's like you're getting rocked around, you're questioning whether I want to do this again or I hate this or what am I doing, is how do I persist through those things? It's not, the, it's not the outcomes that keep you going. It's the things that say, okay, well, what can I do to be the best version of myself in the next one or two minutes? This is in an athlete context or in the next quarter. What can we do as a company that sticks to our core values, that stick with the identity of what we mean as a company? To, and, and ultimately, uh, if you if you stick by those things and you have good you have good practices and processes in place that reward those things, then the outcomes or the performance uh, uh, metrics start to rise or take care of themselves. I'm just going to put on the indicator here, Simon, and take an off ramp based on what you just said. That I'll come back to where I was going to go. But the hearing you say that you say in the next two minutes as an athlete or in the next quarter as an organization? Does it meet up with our values, does it meet up with our core identity, which I think is gold? Is a way to do that, if I go back to British sport and I go back to the story of the British rowing team before the Sydney Olympics in 2000, where the team would always ask themselves, will this make the boat go faster? Is that the sort of psychology we should go through in our mind as an individual competing, an individual business person and or a team to say, we have these values, we have this identity, which we've built into a purpose, we've got a dream to create this. Will this make the boat go faster? Is that a sporting analogy to bring us to that moment? It really is. And that's a great analogy because it's focusing on very much sort of here and now decision making, right? It's also based on, you know, it's very consistent with what we know, for example, in take a lean systems approach in business, is what are we doing now that is is always related to the outcome that we want, right? So so in that so in that sense, when you're when you try and connect process for and this is really difficult to do because you have to identify process metrics that are intricately related to your outcome right so it's no point saying we just all want to get along as a company right we all want to have a good harmonious working relationship have good interpersonal relationships because there are lots of companies that really like one another but they suck right so that's not the goal isn't just to have metrics for 
for you know personal harmony sake. The outcomes have to always be related to your outcome. And in the rowing analogy, or, or and uh, British cycling uh, followed this as well with this sort of they talk about marginal gains, but it's focusing on what can I do in the immediate future and whatever immediate is you know is contextually bound to make this uh, this uh, process this uh, this uh, skill improve as efficiently and as fast as possible. And when I have a lot of those to focus on, one, it stops us being in the past or in the future, worrying where our, you know, our mind is at the time. It keeps, it keeps us focused on the things in front of our noses. You find that actually, one, some great things, certainly in athletically, some great things happen. Your perception of time changes. You start to actually then be really mindful of how day-to-day small things that you might dismiss as being unimportant or irrelevant, how all of these things start to aggregate into changes in long-term or longer-term outcomes. And, and you know, this is the, the special source of being, and it's not even that bloody special because it's kind of, if you think about it, is as is is an intuitive common sense about it, but so many athletes struggle with it, is that how can I, when I ask an athlete, what's your job as an athlete? And they'll say to me, oh, it's to, you know, they'll give me a, a, a bunch of performance metrics, the podium, to PR, to qualify, to blah, 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 contract, blah, blah. Say, no, your goal as an athlete is to execute a process, right? And often it's as fast and as efficient as possible. Some sports speed isn't important. But it's about process execution. And then all of the skills that you try and use on a day-to-day basis, because let's face it, what gets an athlete out of bed every morning isn't necessarily the thought of going to the Olympics. Because if that's all you're going to rely on, you've got a long, bloody road ahead of you, uh, an uncertain road ahead of you. You have to have things that you can draw on on a daily or sometimes hourly basis, because that's not what's going to get you through difficult times. So how you do that as a company or as an athlete or as a coaching relationship is to start to unpack what those process goals or what those things that you need to focus on in the moment, but the driving the will this drive the boat faster examples you have to spend time doing. And that takes work. You're very good, mate. I gotta say that is absolute gold. We we spoke earlier in the show, and a couple of times you you talked about I am and I just want to set this up to get your perspective on it, Simon. We had a lady on the show not long ago who wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Her name was Bronnie Ware, and it is a a fabulous book. And Bronnie talked about the fact there was a moment in her life where she never really acknowledged the fact that she was creative, in which case she never wrote the book that was in her and she didn't do the art and she never spent time with herself. And I said to her, was it the moment where you said, I am creative? that things started to change. And now she is putting out this fabulous work to the world and changing lives. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What's the psychology behind I am or something you said before? Maybe it's a disempowering thing. You said... I am just a. What's the psychology behind how you frame that and see ourselves with in terms of identity, Simon? It, it's absolutely central to identity or to these self-schema statements. And one of the reasons is that when you look at the seven criteria for gauging a mature identity, meaning a healthy identity, and this comes from the psychological research literature. This isn't something that I've just made up. <laughs> um, one of them, for example, is that you own, you take ownership of your ability. So you're neither embarrassed by it or you feel the need to prove it or excuse it to others. And so and I, an example of this is when my wife was competing at, at an elite level, had an elite license, competing for a national team. It took her three years before she could actually say out loud, I'm a professional athlete, when she was asked what she does. It's a sense that her identity was still yet sort of trying to ripen. It didn't, she didn't really f- take some ownership over it. So the I am statement is taking ownership of it, saying, listen, this is who I am, and not worrying about that, well, they're not going to really, I'm not really this because I haven't done X, Y, Z, or I haven't met, or I'm talking to someone who's done much more than me, so I can't feel as though I'm saying that I am this, or so on. So it's, it's this, like, one of those features, again, neither in, you own it, you're neither embarrassed by it, or you, you, you don't have the need to prove it to others. So I am is absolutely critical. And that's, and that's one of the things that you can do is to start to, to saying exactly that. So you start to think of yourself as, who are you? I am this. And it's not just this little internal thing that you're saying to yourself, although that's where you start. When you start saying it to other people or in public forums or the, the, way, the places to which you're communicating with others, it, one, you find that you don't get ridiculed or criticized or judged the way you think you are. Your worst, your little chimp brain is so scared of you know, thinking that you're going to be judged by that. You actually find that Nothing really changes. No, they don't start treating you differently. But it's incredibly liberating and empowering for you to do that. And it's a, it's a little simple thing that you can do. That's, that's a huge step towards building that, giving your, uh, your athletic identity or your identity in whatever capacity a booster seat. But the flip side must be then when someone goes, ah, oh, yeah, I'm just a... There must be the flip side where we are creating a ceiling of our potential to be our best by not claiming I am, but then replacing it with a I'm just a. Right. And this is really what, like in psychology, we talk about cognitive behavior therapy as sort of a therapeutic a series of tools or strategies to deal with exactly that issue. So you're confronting the irrationality of some of these statements that we say to ourselves, I'm just a. Yeah, but you do this, but you also do that. So Where's the just to come? So you're trying to always not just confront the way that we talk to ourselves with some objective evidence, but you're trying to provide alternative ways of thinking. And often, to begin with, it is a little bit of sort of self-affirmation, repetitive things that you deep down don't believe in your head. But to change that sort of narrative about yourself, you can do it behaviorally by saying it. When does... 
identity become problematic, Simon? Uh, identity becomes problematic when we start to think about it, uh, when, again, taking this little uh, audit or this little sort of checklist, is when you uh, it starts to get in the way of your development. There's lots of people that we know who have very overripe, rotten identities, right? And they and they're probably they're very they're they're probably very functional in that capacity. At the extreme, these might be narcissistic personalities. They might be people who are you know chronic office gossipers or other strategies that people use to bypass, circumvent, shore up issues with identity or deep-seated issues with identity. So it can become over the top. And unfortunately, in, in, in businesses or contexts where there are very few clear objective criteria for how well you're doing, it becomes a problem. So sport in many senses we're kind of lucky, right? Because you're either you can either run a 5K in under 20 minutes, or you can't, right? You can either quite get an Olympic qualification time, or you can't. But in other contexts, especially when you're working in teams, we have things something called social loafing. So how that you know you're sort of getting whisked along, and you can kind of escape some of the hard work, but take the credit for the group of the team. And we all know this from college or university group projects. There's always a few loafers. So when there are very very few uh, indicators of performance along the way that are able to call out people's not pulling their weight, not taking responsibility, not owning up, not uh, not self-criticizing, not self-aggrandizing, uh, having emotional reactions. One of these other criteria of a mature identity is having emotional reactions that most people consider reasonable given what's gone wrong, right? So someone having losing the plot, having a tantrum or getting very aggressive over something that most people would consider, look, just calm the F down here. It's not the end of the world. Or Right. So all they're just making mountains out of molehills, you might you might think of it like that. So these are all clues that identity work is a problem and and they can get in the way of effective, productive teams. Right. So but unless you're sort of sensitized to some of these little issues and and more importantly, know which of the little pieces of the jigsaw has, has had a has got a, a side missing, so it's just not gelling with other identities that's needed to work in a team. It becomes critical. If I can expand upon the negative voice thing, Simon, I heard Bono, the lead singer of rock band U2, talk about backstage at Slane Castle, and he said every night when you go on the stage, it's like a boxer going into the ring and your opponent is yourself. And on any given night, you hope your best self wins. I suspect that if someone like that is adored, has that negative voice that he's, that he's fighting with, and I suspect your wife Leslie goes through the same thing as a multiple world champion, and we've talked about early in the show about those, those positionings in her mind as she got better and better and having to acknowledge the fact that she was actually good. What's the best we can hope for in terms of dealing with that negative voice? Well, I'm glad you point out, it reminded me that Bono was the lead singer of the rock band U2. I would never have heard of Bono unless you said that. So I'm teasing you. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, what I would say is it's extremely uh, context dependent. So one of the features of identity is that other people call you that, right? So this is just another feature. So there's some external validation that you are that role. And unfortunately, in, in, in positions that you, when you get to the top of your game, you are so, there's a tendency to surround yourself with people who are always telling you that your shit doesn't stink, right? They, 
part and, there, and there's lot there's lots of reasons for that. Partly because they they have job security concerns themselves. They think that they want to always make you feel good and that kind of stuff. But what happens is that those people often lose the ability to judge fairly objectively when their own identity is getting out of hand, right? And so one of the things that we need to try and do is to be one more in tune with our own sort of objective filter of, am I being a bit of a this kind of person here or that kind of person? Or you deliberately bring people into your close entourage who are always going to try and tell you the truth, no matter at what price that comes, right? So it's really important to have that sort of vetting procedure. So when you talk about going in onto a stage, a metaphorical stage in this sense, and performing, this could be a, the pitch of your life as a, an entrepreneur. It could be asking for a pay, the way that you ask for a pay rise. It could be going to a big competition, giving a, a, a talk, whatever, going on a first date. You know, you want to be on your best form. Um, you can be. Unfortunately, our brain is kind of wired in, in, in a certain way, and I use wired in a very loose sense, um, to, to kind of try and get us to run away from situations that scare the crap out of us. And this comes back to, you know, it's, it's very difficult to not get into some of the neuroscience of what we now know about how our brain works and why it feeds us these thoughts and feelings that we don't want. But kind of in a nutshell, a part of our brain that's really primitive, it's called the limbic system, where it's all our fight, it's all where our fight or flight response comes from, it's where all our instincts and drives comes from, it's where all our, our pain and pleasure centers are. It doesn't think rationally. In fact, it's not even the real you and how you think about yourself and who you are. But it's kind of this inner voice. Some people call it our lizard brain, our reptile brain. We call it the chimp brain because it kind of is pro prone to tantrums and outbreaks. And, and its goal in life is from a very respectable, you know, keep the gene pool alive, is to keep you alive, right? So it's going to try and give you, convince you to avoid situations where it feels threatened, physically threatened or psychologically threatened. And we now know that psychologically threatened is the things that the kind of the three legs of the stool that will make your brain shit the bed most times is the fear of, am I going to be embarrassed, humiliated, or shown to be inadequate in this context? And if, that, and if your chimp brain, your, your limbic system detects that one of those things could come true, because millions of years ago, if that happened, it often did mean death. You were ostracized from the troop. You were, you know, for, forage food for yourself. You had to defend yourself. But nowadays, it doesn't lead to those things. You know, it's like, think about why we don't go up to sing karaoke or something. It's ridiculous, those of us that can't do it, because it's kind of like, you know, who cares at the end of the day? But we still do. And what those thoughts and feelings, what those emotions give us, and the reason humans have emotions is to drive decision-making, is to force us to make a decision. And so when you go into a situation that is quite objectively terrifying, not necessarily life and death, but the thought of screwing up is high on the, you know, or, or doing a good job is high on the priority, of course, your limbic system is going to say, don't do this. What are you doing? The thoughts of this, this, this could come true. Just do it again. Put it off. Postpone it. Why don't you do something you're good at? You're no good at this. Or So the, the only way that you can now sort of try and wrestle that voice back is to either 
become someone that you're not, and this is where the notion of an alter ego comes from in in uh, in business or in sport. But or you can just try and use the skills of your wrinkly frontal cortex, the real you, the smart professor brain you, who knows on paper that's just this and the world, the sun will still come up tomorrow, and it doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things. How do I try and win that brain fight so that I'm the rational side of me is still in charge, so I'm not paralyzed by thoughts of failure or thoughts of being embarrassed and how do i not how do i force myself to be out of my comfort zone and we know that when you do that quite remarkable things happen in the brain and we this notion of neuroplasticity that our brain is physically changing in response to adverse circumstances so no matter how old you are physical changes happen in the brain and it's not just about sort of you know synaptic strengthening and physical structures getting denser and thicker and growing in response to that but it's actually making our the, the reason it does this is because so the next time you're in this situation you'll be slightly better at it so there's almost like a training effect of your brain so the best way to get better at situations that scare the crap out of you is to do more put yourself in more situations that scare the crap out of you so we often say that you have to earn adversity training or adversity mental toughness. You can't learn it. Yes, you can read books and know rationally what you need to do. But ultimately, until you're in it and you're forced to confront some of those things, you're not going to get these kind of physical changes which are going to make you more resilient. So you always want to have opportunities. Force yourself to be out of your comfort zone on a fairly regular basis so that you don't get you know, perennially scared or you're not, you, and we know fears generalize. And the more you retreat from scary stuff, the more scary stuff becomes scary, right? So before you know it, you're stuck in your four walls. So the, to stop those, those walls closing in on you, you constantly have to be pushing against them and trying to build new wall, new, a new perimeter fence, just one foot further out, one foot further out. And that really is the hallmark of great, you know, no matter excellence in whatever field you're in, you could take the special forces, you could take, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a public, great public speakers, actors, athletes, entrepreneurs, business owners. That's a defining characteristic, changing your relationship with failure. So I just want to go back to, well, build upon that. Let's go back to something you said about alter ego. And I read that Beyonce, Queen Bee, who's also a big fan of our show. Hi, hello, Queen Bee. Um, Beyonce turns into Sasha Fierce the minute she takes the stage. So Beyonce said when she's on stage, she's not Beyonce, she's Sasha Fierce because Beyonce couldn't do on stage what Sasha Fierce can do. Could you talk to me about alter ego and tell me your relationship of what you know about Patty McGinty? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. My, my, my least favourite, favourite Irish <laughs> fighter, yeah. Um, so here, here's the deal about alter ego. So alter egos essentially are just giving yourself, playing a character, right? And it's got actually a rich tradition in psychology, thinking of yourself in the third person. Whole schools of psychotherapy, some of the strategies are rooted in getting to think of yourself as somebody different, right? And it isn't necessarily like you're a different person, but what would you say to yourself if you were sat there? In, you know, So we do this kind of exercise with ourselves frequently, and we know that it works. And one of the reasons it works is because we get detachment from our thoughts and feelings. And this is getting a little bit like 
metaphysical, metacognitive here. So I don't want to start going in too deep. I know you're Aussies, so I was going to blow your head off. But <laughs> so, so, uh, uh, but in essence, one of the if you think about what gives us the most mental angst, right, in life, and the existential, you know, philosophers have written about this ad nauseum. Psychologists have written about this. It's fundamentally believing that the thoughts and feelings that we have about the world are actually us, right? And we know we now know that that's not actually true. We're kind of the carrying container of our experiences. If you start to believe that you are your thoughts and feelings, we get into trouble really quickly, especially if those thoughts and feelings are plagued by self-doubt, criticism, blah, 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 blah. So what we try and do is the one e- real easy way to do it is to say, rather than give you, you know, 15 years of a very expensive psychotherapy or ECT treatment, right, when it's strapping your electrode, we can say, well, just pretend, fake it, right? And what happens when you, f- when you start faking it? You start to sort of unburden yourself of those believing that those thoughts and feelings are actually you. So you start to say, okay, well, think of a character that you admire, someone who really you would like to be like in that environment. And sometimes it's a real person. Sometimes it's like a character. Sometimes it's just somebody you've made up. And you try and step into the skin of that. And, and a good example, personally for me, is I'm actually quite introverted by nature. When I started, uh, I was a professor at university for many years and I had to speak, you know, do lectures for 350 students. And the thought of an introvert standing up in front, like it, it, it enough to make me, you know, like be catatonic under the desk. So what you have to do is you have to act. You have to say, this isn't, I'm going to put on a veneer. And you don't have to even give it a name, although we recommend people do that, is, but you start to assume the characteristics, the body language, the posture, the things, the little sentences, the phrases that you use to embody that temporarily. And for some situations, it's really important, like take Conor McGregor, the actual MMA fighter, that you know the swagger he's got. He's not like, you know, newsflash, he's not like that at home with his wife, right? (laughs) Uh, You'd be shocked if he is. But he puts on, is a persona, and the persona helps him get into this mindset of doing what he's got to do in the ring. And it also earns him a lot of money doing it. So Leslie, being this, you know, she's five foot two, she's 100 pounds, you know, 48 kilos. And when she stands up against some of the pro triathlete women who are built like these Amazonian goddesses, you know, who are big shoulders, their legs that come up to her neck, you know, she's like, I'm going to get bloody annihilated out here. What am I doing? You know, so she thought that the only way rather than try and completely rewire her oh you go first you know no no it's no problem you know i'm not going to stand on the front line of the gun i'm going to stand at the back and once it goes off i'm gonna find that's not going to work and she could work a lot of you know on those thoughts and things to help that she's just going to fake it so she invented an alter ego of her own and she calls hers paddy mcginty which is a bit like conor mcgregor type it's this irish bare knuckled fighter so she's got and it's bloody frightening to see is that on race morning and she does this when she's training as well it's the it's the stance it's the swagger it's the glare it's the she'll as though she's walking as though she's six foot tall and and she starts to that's the only way she could kind of get her in a bitch on once the gun goes off right you're out there <laughs> 
and 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 it works for her, right? And then she kind of receives back to Leslie, the sort of quite shy, you know, you go first, I'm okay. And that's a, a strategy that works for her. The difficulty comes is when she can't like get out of character. So she comes home after a hard training session. She's still, and I can see if it's Paddy McGinty coming up the stairs to see me. And I don't want to sleep with an Irish MMA fighter at <laughs> night. So um Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, well, not, not, not on a Tuesday, anyway. So, uh, <laughs> so she... So, you know, she, she has to know how to kind of come out of that character as well. So she's got a little sort of, you know, she'll, we, uh, we live in a, 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 like a town home. It's got this little kind of turret staircase. So that's her little one or two minutes to sort of switch back into Leslie, you know, uh, nice, kind, uh, wifey Leslie and, uh, you know, uh, a normal person Leslie and out of this athletic persona. And that actually helps, you know, if you've got a business costume, athletes have, you know, outfits that they wear. That can also help to create that identity. But it's a real, it's a tremendously powerful way of, like, overcoming some of those those doubts and fears you have, and you know, it's not even just dress up make believe. Some of these science, some of these scientific studies show that, for example, you might have heard of the power posture or power posing when you stand with shoulders back. Blah, blah, blah. We get neurochemical changes in the brain. Now, some of these changes have not been reliably or sort of repeated consistently in the research literature, so it's still a somewhat contentious topic. But the notion is that we can reverse engineer our psychology, our psychology, because the Psychologists for forever have used the mental model of thought. It's a trickle-down model. Thoughts influence feelings, influence behavior. So if I want to change the way you behave, I have to first start with how you think. That's going to influence how you feel. And, and we now know that that's a very outdated model. You can actually reverse engineer it, just change your behavior. And guess what? You get changes biochemically that influence how you feel. And that leads to a cascade of thinking about how you, sorry, cascade of sort of uh, change about how you think. So just by faking it with body language, by posture, is having tangible changes. And it's really, it's a really a quite remarkable process to, to, to go through. If we keep going down this track with Patty, you've talked about the effort moment where you go, you know what, effort. And when I heard you talk about that, I stopped the podcast and just thought about it and how that changes your thinking in the moment. What's the psychology behind that, Simon? When you just go to that point where you go, you know what, effort. Yep. What is the psychology? It's, what happens in the brain and why is it powerful? It's because what we're doing is we're trying to stay in the present, right? What's the task at hand that is going to make – this is the, you know, 
will this right now make the boat go faster? We're trying to stay in that mindset at all times because we get lost in worrying about a mistake that we just made or, oh my God, uh, this this has already happened. So I'm already sort of extrapolating what that's going to mean for me in five hours time or in one quarter time or what have you. So trying to stay in the moment. And, and it comes down to a very simple principle. And we know it's a cliche now, controlling the controllables, right? And so I, we always say to athletes, on the start line, you've been dealt a hand of cards and your cards reflect a combination of preparation, how fit you are, your nutrition, all the things that you've done leading up to making you ready. There'll be a few little trump cards that have been thrown in or jokers. I woke up this morning and I've that bloody niggle in my hamstring has come back for no apparent reason. Why of all days does it have to, you know? So we have these cards that are in the moment. But what we have to do is that if we can't change it, we have to deal with it, right? And if we can change it, we have to focus on changing it. So what's in your control at all times once the gun goes off? And we often talk about two things, effort and attitude. When all said and done, the only two things that you can focus on in the moment are your effort and your attitude. And so we try and get get us to almost become obsessed with being effort and attitude driven in the moment. So effort, this means not just physical exertion. Am I pushing as hard as I can, given what I still got to go? I've still got to go. But am I being technically, am I being the best athlete I can be? I might be going slow as shit now, but am I? is my running form, is my running posture the best I could possibly be right now? So I'm all my focus is on this kind of here and now thinking. And then the attitude part is staying positive. But we've spoken a little bit about how positivity, the mindset of positivity, the behaviors that you have change the sort of neurochemistry of your brain so that you can turn things around. So that you can deal with. And so when an athlete crosses the line and we say and they we say to them, this is the way that we want you to start judging how well you've done. The the post-race autopsy. Could I have given any more than I gave? And did I keep as positive a focus as I could? If you could say yes to those questions, we say it's a successful day. Because you know what? If you've missed the podium or if you've missed the money or the placings or whatever it is for you by X amount of time, if you can honestly say to yourself, I couldn't have done anything more, then you can't really be mad at yourself, right? There's nothing else you could have done. Sure, there are lessons to be learned uh, and how I can make myself better for next time. But if you can commit to those things, so all the exercises and the drills and the strategies and the the pre-race stuff that we get athletes to focus on is helping you become an absolute ninja at being having a present focus. And it's not just a present focus like when everything's going well, the tailwind with the wind behind you when you can whistle it. Oh, this is awesome. It's when things are absolutely look as though they're falling apart, right? Everything is going wrong. How do we steep keep focused on that. So we use a whole bunch of little uh, brain hacks that to help some, help you do some of that. But the, the same, uh, I think, would apply uh, in business as well. When things aren't going well, right, how do I focus on the things that remind me of excellence right now? What can we just do right now to keep that ball rolling? Because if I, if I become overly concerned with how everything is ruined or I start to catastrophize and awfulize and all the other isings that bloody psychologists come up with, then we know that that mindset doesn't contribute to executing the process as quickly and as efficiently as possible. So that becomes like the mantra for our athletes. When you're working with athletes, Simon, and you've written about this in the book, you talk about it, 
and you're forming an identity, I'm sure there are those that think if I choose that identity that I am, it makes me sound like I'm bragging. It makes me sound like I'm better than I am. Where does humility fit into this equation? Because you mentioned the military earlier in the show. And whenever I speak to Navy SEALs or people from special ops on the show, and they talk about the attributes of great leaders or people that inspire them, humility is always one of the key ingredients. And Robbo and I have talked about this with the All Blacks, you know, one of the greatest brands in sport in the world and central to everything they do is humility. Where does it work with athletes? It's the same. I mean, it's like, so, you know, again, this is coming back to this little seven check this audit about identity is that, you know, owning your ability, not overly self-aggrandizing how great you are, not being overly self-critical, excusing it. How do I find that sort of sweet spot in the middle. And so that's one of the hallmarks. So we, you know, we often, we, in psychology, in sports psychology terms, we talk about attributional retraining. Again, bloody psychologists, attributional retraining. And so what, what this means is that the reason that whenever a performance happens, you give a performance in what, you know, in air quotes, performance of some capacity, and, it, and there's a result. And the way that you explain that result, the what you attribute that result to tells us a lot about your identity, right? So we know, for example, that people who have a tendency when things go well to always assume, well, I was just lucky or, oh, people, those people weren't, it was an easy field that day or not many people showed up. It tells us a little bit about their self-belief or their confidence that's shoring up that part of their identity. And likewise, people who never take responsibility when things go wrong or point the fingers, but when things go right, they're all too eager to take the credit for it. The attributions they make are never truly internalized. We know it's an issue. So, and and we all, and and you've only you you know you, we can psychologize this all we like, but we know what it's like to be around people who have humility, right? It's it's like it, it's a it's it's a really easy, relaxing, comfortable thing to to have to be around. So we know it's good for interpersonal relationships. We know, for example, that we're trusting. Relationships are built on vulnerabilities. They're not built on strength. So always constantly telling people and reminding people and giving them what we call impression management, how that we get people to think that we're really great, is not how you build trusting relationships. You build them by opening up to things that you're not very good at or admitting the things that you struggle with. That's how you form those relationships. That's why team building, when you know you send off teams into the woods and they have to do all this shit together, they learn to cope with stuff together. That's one of the reasons that they're so powerful how they knit teams together so well because you get to admit and show vulnerability and weakness and how you support that so it's really critical for athletes to do the same so that humility is kind of a a real fantastic core attribute of really these kind of mentally tough mature identities is social media having an impact on our identity simon i've heard you talk about impression management What's your view on that from, because back in the day when you might've been a young athlete, you didn't have the exposure to the outside world that you would today. Is is social media and the access we have to other people's world impacting our own identity, do you think? Uh, not just I think, there's, a, there's now thousands of research studies to show absolutely it is. 
and not and not and not just that, but there are studies. You know, there are probably more than twenty or thirty studies now, specifically on things like Facebook use and the way that you post and curate what you say about yourself on a, and the effects that that has on your mental health. Absolutely, and and this stems back to one of the mo- uh, the most human of traits, which is we want to know where we sit in the social hierarchy, right? And to try and pretend that that's not important is to sort of deny an element of our humanness. We want to know how we stack up, right? And this could be not just like silly things, like not silly things, but, you know, things that we all know of already, like attractiveness and athleticness and smarts. Uh, but it's also about uh, things like my ability to be funny or to, to have form relationships or whatever. So we always do this because whenever you give a human brain information about themselves, feedback, the first thing you know, we do is, well, what, uh, what does this mean? And the second question that the brain are, you are, will ask yourself is, well, is that any good? So what, what does that mean? So we need to, we're always trying to contextualize information about ourselves. So the way we've done it before is that we look and we watch and we learn. But now, of course, with social media, it's sort of impression management. And that, that impression management is the phrase that psychologists use to say, we t- we're always constantly trying to shape other people's perceptions of us, right? We're trying to manage their impressions of us all the time. And even if you say that you don't do it, you are doing it. It's often it can be at a subconscious level, right? So people who say, I don't care about any of that, what people think of me, that is part of their impression management. They like people thinking that they don't care about stuff. So we all do it. And and unfortunately, social media, especially uh, you know, uh, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, it's impression management software, right? That's what it's doing because you've suddenly got the ability to curate an image of yourselves, broadcast it to the world for thousands or millions of people to see. And not only that is that you're able to curate it in such a way that you can kind of airbrush over the cracks and the faults. So you can you put, and we, and there's a again, lots of scientific studies to show that we, how we do this in software like Facebook. They're pictures that we post of ourselves, and the subtle ways that we decide to, we're going to check in, you know, on Facebook. I'm checking into an airport. I'm flying somewhere. Oh my god! But I'm really in my impression management. I, I, I'm a world traveler. I'm worldly. I do. We're, we're constantly doing it. Right. So so when athletes do it and you if you buy in, what you're seeing is the highlight reel of someone's life. And it's a performance in every sense of the word. It's not their real life. And and in fact, I would even hesitate to say the more perfect it looks, the shittier their life usually is. Right. Because one of the strategies that we use for impression management, if we feel internally and self-defeating we just we're in turmoil or something we just we've got some self-loathing or we're struggling with self-acceptance one of the natural reactions is to try and counter that by trying to portray an overly optimistic positive attitude so when you're looking on facebook this athlete and this is a common example we get of athletes I, I can't help but kind of following my rival athlete and i look what she's doing or he's doing and not only are they fast but they've got a perfect effing family as well and their kids are all fucking a students oh you know And what you're watching, right, is not actual real life because nobody's life is like that. 
we want to have the selfie up there of us finishing the 20 mile uh, uh, you know run and we're dripping with sweat we got through it but we're not going to show the three other runs that week where we're mildly hung over and we had to turn back after 15 minutes right we we just don't want to show that stuff because it's sort of this is it's letting into that vulnerability so we're doing it all the time and we try and have athletes to learn. If we, it's, it's naive to assume that you can say just turn off all social media, unplug. That's not going to happen. It's like, you know, it's emotional porn, right, to our brains, that kind of stuff. But what you can do is to see it for what it is and have constant reminders of what it is is you're watching highlight reels. So don't you believe what you're actually seeing? Sure, be curious about it and find ways to stalk and graze and, you know, like what people are up to, but be very wary of trying to internalize that for giving you guidelines about how you should live your life or how deficient things or uh, things are in your, in your world. It's funny talking with people like you, Simon, who are at the top of your game and I think people would look at you and Leslie and think you've got it sorted. <laughs> when things don't go, no, but when, when things don't go your way, with all you know, and it does hit the fan, and you have that bad day, how do you deal with it? What's your mental process you go through, or you help Leslie, or the two of you go through when it hits the fan? Well, I'm British, so I drink heavily. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, no. Okay. So, next question. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, well, here's 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 the thing, um, and this is sort of we now know that there's sort of evidence to support this. Is you know, it's the, the adage that you know you're great in in other people's crises, but you're terrible in your own, right? And we now know that that is a fairly you know it's a, it's it's part of the human condition, right? There's it's no surprise that many psychologists are kind of tweaked themselves, right? They got into the field or they have their own demons that struggle themselves. I'm not saying that's just unique to psychology. Lots of us, like we might be very good at helping other people, but we, we're struggling with this shit ourselves too. And I'm no exception to that as well. And Leslie's no exception uh, to that too. And partly because we've all got these sort of frontal cortex, chimp brain, professor brain, internal conflict going. And when we help other people, when we try and solve other people's problems, guess what we use? We use our rational professor frontal cortex brain because we're not necessarily emotionally invested in it. But when we're trying to help ourselves, we've got the 800-pound gorilla in our head telling us that, oh, be you know, high alert, be scared, humiliation, embarrassment alert, for, you know, uh, inadequacy, what are you doing, all this stuff. So we kind of can't get out of our own way. Uh, in many senses. So what Leslie and I do uh, is that, you know, recognizing that this is kind of, that we, life sucks sometimes. And sometimes it sucks for a long period. And that's part of sort of the human condition. There's a great, as an author who I, I really love this guy's book, he's called Mark Manson. And he wrote a book, a New York Times of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And, and I, Underneath the sort of irreverent title and the sort of throwaway, you know, blah, blah, it's some absolutely golden principles of living that are rooted in psychology, really good psychology. Uh, and one of those is that really life is about suffering. That is the point. And it might seem a sort of a strange masochistic approach to life, but it's really to say that, listen, Life is always kind of sucky. There'll be parts that are sucky. And it's not some of what makes us happy or get us fulfillment in life 
is not so much to try and fix the suffering so that we can finally be happy. We can get X, Y, Z. I can be, you know, get the house I wanted, the job I wanted, the relationship I always wanted, and then everything is going to be great. And we now know that that rarely, if ever, happens. It's how you decide to choose the things that you want to suffer about, right? So it's trying to prioritize how that you connect your value system with things that the environments that you put yourself into. And when you're able to do that, you can sort of make sense of your kind of the little shit balls that happen in your life because you're doing them for a reason, right? It's all part of what it is that you feel passionate about doing versus just doing it for the sake of it. So it's, it's A, back to your question, is A, recognizing that there's nothing unusual, uncommon, or anything sort of otherwise um, uh, 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 problematic with struggling at times because that's what life is about. And then it's how you make sense of that and how you kind of develop some skills to kind of get through that, cope with the airline turbulence as best you can. And that really is what life is about. If I, just to finish up, Simon, when I do it identity, just to, to bring us to closure here, that if I go to your website, the photography and the style of your website is very contrary to what you'd expect from a sports psychologist or a world champion athlete. And what it makes me think of when I hear you speak is Marco Pierre White, who is a British chef and one of the greats of the world. But his imaging when he was when he was starting out, he was the rock and roll chef in the kitchen, cleaver in his hand with this staring daggers look. And that was his image. And you guys have got this very cool funky image, which is very contrary to what you'd expect when you go to a website to talk about athletes, performance, psychology. What's the identity that you guys are looking to give off? And what's the greatest compliment that somebody could give of you to with that identity behind your back? What's funny is that I, those pictures in our website still makes me squirm, right? Um, because part of my, right. And, and there's a funny story, a little bit of a funny story behind this is that we've got a friend of ours who's a real talented photographer. He's a triathlete and he said, oh, I can take some pictures for your website and stuff like that. So he said, here's what we're going to do. Take these pictures. And Leslie and I, Leslie feels less uncomfortable with this because she's just used to doing sort of photo shoots and that kind of stuff. But, but I am, I, you can probably detect the ass twitching in the pictures of me <laughs> doing it. And, and, and the, the funny thing was, is that my reaction against being, you know, cause I look at that and I just see who are these narcissistic fucking people? I, I don't want anything to do with that. Right. And actual fact, and coming back to the, you know, we're all struggling with our own shit is the fact that that's part of my uh, problem with my own identity. I don't, I didn't for many years and I still have a little bit of this in me. I don't feel as though I, I struggle to take ownership of what we're doing. That's the first part of it, right? Rather than say, here, here we are, this is what we do versus, oh, I'm just kind of behind the scenes and you know, I don't want to, I, I don't want to be seen, but you can read about what we've done and that kind of stuff. And, and it was Leslie and the photographer, a guy called uh, Matt Wright, who, was, who were trying to explain, pointing out the delicious irony in this, this whole thing, right, uh, about struggling with. And then the second part of it is that from a much more of a sort of a uh, think about the science of this is that we, we make decisions primarily through emotion, right? They're very emotionally driven. That's why we have emotions. And 
the, the, the number of milliseconds uh, that we process these cues uh, with our limbic system, our chimp brain, and we form opinions about things that then get shaped and molded by the rational thinking brain. And, but that's where decision-making comes from. So actually, the overall look and feel of it, um, which is, you know, we try and kind of lean it down. It's about what is this, you know, a few words on the picture. You kind of see what does this concoct? What is this? Uh, what messages are sent to you? We're trying to reach out to people's emotional decision making to try and say this is what we do, and this is kind of a fairly common thing now in branding in general, right? You're trying to portray the essence, that sort of visceral essence of what you do. And one of the features, and we try to reflect this in our book as well, is taking a little bit of an alternative or irreverent view to things. It's like it's not business as usual or it's not the conventional way that you would think about this. So it might make people thinking, huh, well, that's that bad. I never thought of it like that. Or that's kind of strange. Or that's kind of I want to disconnect there. So we're trying to get people to think a little bit more in, on those lines. Um, but yes, I still feel incredibly uncomfortable about it. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Also, I bet you're uncomfortable about this. It looks like on the big blog page, there's the two of you out running in an event. It looks like a 10K or a marathon or something. And it actually looks like Leslie's in front of you and you are struggling to hang on. Is that, uh, am I reading this right, mate? <laughs> now, listen. <laughs> <laughs> one, one, you're so stupid you think that's offensive. And two, yeah, so that, I think, I think, I, I, listen, get, getting chicked, is that, would Ozzy say getting chicked when you get overtaken, <laughs> a guy getting overtaken by a girl? I've, I've, never, I've never understood why guys have a problem with that. You know, I, I, I've, you know, they've worked. They've worked harder. They've trained more than you. Get used to it. And A, as a guy, it's kind of mildly arousing as well. So, But let's, let's just, <laughs> aside from the fact the psychology of getting chicked, what you're actually seeing in that picture is that Leslie is, I think the picture you're talking about is Leslie is in the, is in a running, a, a racing in a half Ironman triathlon. She's on the run leg. And I'm supporting her in my support husband <laughs> training role, team shit. And I'm giving her some time splits. But what's <laughs> happened is that I've decided in my fucking idiotic wisdom to try and give her time splits when she's going to be running at her fastest. Uh, so <laughs> never, I should have chosen an uphill where she slowed down. So that's me as I realized that, oh my God, she's actually running 5.45 minute pace. And I, you know, I, I get hemorrhoids at anything under seven minutes. <laughs> So I'm having to like frantically shout the splits as she leaves, you know, the the station in front of me. So I think that's what you're seeing there. <laughs> as opposed to getting cheeked, I think we would call as Aussies what Gary described. I think Aussies would call that under the thumb. <laughs> oh, you see, that's totally different. <laughs> that that's very different. Simon, I am respectful of your time. You've been very gracious to, to give us a lot of your time. Mate, I, I, honestly, I could talk to you for hours. I think your content, your honesty, your approach to all this is fantastic. The book's great. Um, and I think you two, as a dynamic, you are really doing a lot of great things for athletes. And I think a lot of this stuff can be applied to the family, to how we raise children. Robbo's a coach of a young footy team. It's great stuff we can take and apply to our world, mate. We are very, very grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. And, you know, always here to chat with Leslie perhaps next time if she's not out training or doing uh, sports stuff. And listen, I'm just glad that I now finally know who Bono is. So thank you for that as well. <laughs> and Marco Pierre White, I would presume and too. And Marco Pierre White, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting oh for that. God. I was waiting for the sting as I was saying and I thought, you're stepping in it again. <laughs> I know, no, I, let, I, let, I gave you a pass on that one. 
Yeah. Actually, you look a bit like Marco Pierre White, just, just to tell, just to say. Uh, listen, there's not, there's not, if you knew me, there's nothing rock and roll about me. I, I have got <laughs> and consistently had zero game when it comes to that stuff. How the, how, how the hell I managed to, to blag Leslie, I don't know. Nice. This is great. Well, we, we would love to have you back again, mate. So uh, we will keep in touch with you and we'd love to have, um, we'd love to have Leslie. And also, if we could organise it, it'd be great to have Leslie and Paddy McGinty on the show. Yeah. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah, yeah. That's 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 a, that's the personality you you need a helmet for. So let me <laughs> let me get this straight. If you look like Marco Pierre White, and sometimes Paddy McGinty comes home and not Leslie, does Paddy McGinty come in the house and say, "Cook me dinner, bitch"? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing is about Paddy, she hasn't even got to say it. She can just look at me, yeah, and I'll exactly. <laughs> and I'll and I'll whimper away like a beaten stepchild. Just to finish up, Simon. Uh, where would you send people who'd like to know more about you, Patty and Leslie? I was waiting for that to say, come on, are you gonna, I'm going to let you pitch your book now. <laughs> it, it took you an hour and 10 minutes to do that. I was, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, so a couple of places, you can obviously buy our book, The Brave Athlete, on Amazon, available in Australia uh, as well. Uh, you can get it. It's, it's the audio book as well on Audible. I think you can get the audio book on Amazon, so you can use it to, while you're you know, doing your daily duties, listen to it in addition to reading from it. Our website, which is braveheartcoach.com, braveheartcoach.com, with all of the, uh, you know, narcissistic, slippery, ass-twitching <laughs> pictures for your delight. And you can, or- you, can, you can order it through there as well. But I think most folks in uh, Australia seem to have found it through uh, Amazon. And I believe that the audio book on Audible features a Brit and a Scottish accent. Is that true? You guys actually did it, it yourselves? Oh, that's a, that's a whole other fucking ball of wax, that is, I tell you. So, yes, we, we, they don't usually let authors narrate their own books for reasons we discovered midway through recording the book. So, yes, uh, we do. Uh, we decided to – we wanted to, obviously, because it's our material and, you know, we wanted to connect to it. But um, So we, we, we read a chapter each. So there's an English accent and a Scottish accent, an English accent and a Scottish accent. And it's quite it, – it, it, it was quite the, uh, the experience itself. Like, I never knew things like mouth noise and and all these other things that these audio technicians could tell us about. So, yeah, we read it ourselves. So if you get the audio book, uh, it's actually us in your ears, and then you'll hear elements of Paddy McGinty come out at page 74. Well, thank you, mate. We've kept you long enough. We really, really appreciate it, Simon. It's such a delight to meet you, mate. Anytime. The Mojo Radio Show. <laughs> now, you know how I brought you Tim Tams. Thank you, Mike. Well, yeah, it took someone else to give them to you for you to bring me Tim Tams. Well, no, I've got to say, I had, and I think it's a loner because this is a very, very rare book, <laughs> but it may disappear into the uh, vault. But a listener of the show mm. gave me a book called The Curse of Lono. Do you know that book? Uh, no, I can't say I do. He paid a couple of hundred bucks for it in a secondhand bookshop and one of his mates found the book and said, is this the one you're looking for? Because he had a copy and lost it in moving between flats as a kid. And it was his favourite book of all time and he said, where are you? He said, I'm at this bookshop. He said, stay there. (laughs) And he got a taxi and went down and bought this book because it's such a hard book to get a hold of. It's a collector's item. But it's a book by none other than Hunter S. Thompson. Wow. Wow, I'm a bit of a Hunter S fan and I've never heard of it. So there you go. 
Well, this is a cracker and uh, it's a big book. Like it's one of those really big story books. It's going to be about a metre squared. So I'm sitting on the train with this thing on my lap so nobody can sit next to me, right, (laughs) as I'm reading it. But it's a rare book about Hunter's journey to the Hawaiian Iron Man. I mean, it's ironic, but it is... And it's, it's, there's a guy, I think it's called Ralph Steadman, is an, uh, an artist who's done all the hand-drawing art. Through. Ralph's done a lot of work, did a lot of work for Hunter, yeah. And this book, and the story is that Hunter gets asked and accepts a job to go to Hawaii to cover the marathon and the Ironman and says to Ralph, look, this is a bit of a, bit of a shebang, why don't we go? And the two of them go, and this book is just wonderful. So anyway... Thank you to Chris for, I think it's a loan of the yeah, book. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think it's a keeper. <laughs> but at the same time, and this is this is a little bit of a setup for this piece of what the lesson of rock is, but this is an absolute cracker. So I just finished a book last week called Legacy. It is by far one of the best books that I have read in a year or so. And it's a story about the All Blacks. And the All Blacks are one of the great sporting teams of the world with an 83% winning record. They're just extraordinary. Mm, Anyway, in this book called Legacy, which I absolutely love, I found a chapter. And this bit ties back to this setup around Hunter S. Thompson. So cop this. As a young time journalist, writer Hunter S. Thompson copied out the entire texts of Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby and Hemingway's Farewell to Arms twice. As his friend Johnny Depp told The Guardian, he wanted to know what it felt like to write a masterpiece. Thompson went on to invent gonzo, a genre that combines the objectivity of journalism with the subjectivity of blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Now, Hunter S. Thompson is one of our faves on the show. Absolutely. And... We use one of his quotes as the bottom line of our show notes each and every week. But I just, I like that idea because there is an old saying that you act the way you want to become until you become the way you act. And to copy out those great pieces of writing twice because he wanted to know what it felt like to be a great writer, that's just the most beautiful example of you do what you want to become until you become what you, you, what you just did. Yeah. And then the other part of it is, well, how bad do you want it? Like people have these dreams. They have these ideals of their future. But, I mean, how bad do you want it? How bad did Hunter S. Thompson want to be a great writer? And take all the drugs and the, the outlandish acts, which was just him. Behind that, I just think that's a fantastic piece well, a great lesson of rock for us because he's a bit, he's a bit rock and roll. He's very rock and to roll. To take away and apply to our own worlds, if you are chasing your dream, or as Simon said, if you really want to find your identity that you believe in, then start to act that way and take the first step by finishing this show and doing something about it. Don't you reckon it's a cracker? I think that's awesome. And I'm actually going to take a learning from that. I'm going to, um, I'm going to go off and sing and record Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody said, I I know what it's like to create a masterpiece. (laughs) I might play it next week, actually. Well, we could do that. You could also take this learning to footy training with the the kids because Mm -hmm. if the kids went down and trained like the All Blacks, so if you set them up and you said tonight, I want you to be an All Black, 
and set it up with the book of the legacy and the standards and the fact that their mission was to inspire a whole country of New Zealand. I mean, the, the story in that book is extraordinary. It's very, very well written. So you get the kids to act the way they want to become until they become the way they've acted. So I think there's so much we could apply to our own families and the kids that we inspire, classrooms, workplaces. So to take us out, I thought because Chris loaned me this book and set this whole lesson of rock up, I went to him and said, mate, thank you, loving the book. It's an extraordinary read. It's just a a very unique piece of writing. If there was a song that best represents Hunter, what would it be? (laughs) I could think of a couple. Yeah. Tell me. And his reply was Stephen Wolf, born to be wild. We're out. Get some water running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. Yeah, darling, go make it happen. Take the world in a loving place. Fire all of the guns and pumps and explode into I like smoking lightning Heavy metal thunder Racing with the wind And the feeling that I'm under Yeah, darling, go make it happen Take the world in a love embrace Fire all of your guns and guns And explode into space
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.